How effective would you be as a soldier in the military if you were convinced that there was, there was no real opposition to your country's participation in the battle? How effective would you be as a soldier? Probably not very effective at, at all. Perhaps you'd walk around as if there were no hostility with your guard down. You'd go into the most hostile of cities, perhaps without a Kevlar vest, thinking there's just not really a whole lot of opposition around to what we're, we're experiencing over here, so I don't have to keep up my guard. Jesus takes some time at the end of a long day of teaching to give his disciples hope as the battle rages. We're going to be in Mark chapter 13 this morning. There's a battle that is raging all around us, and Jesus wants to give his disciples encouragement as he is about to leave them, and they are about to remain behind throughout this suffering and experience the same suffering that Jesus experienced. And they were going to be left with the choice. Were they going to be willing to serve and follow Him in faith or would they deny Him, turn away from Him? Because they would not be very effective if they didn't think that opposition was all around. Their response was to stand up courageously in the midst of battle despite persecution, trials, and even death, and, and even the uncertainty of of the time of Christ's coming, His return. They had, to, they had to stand up. They had to continue in the fight. And that's what we'll see here in chapter 13, verses 1 through 13. Let's begin reading in verse 1. As He, Jesus, was going out of the temple, one of His disciples said to Him, Teacher, behold, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another which will not be torn down. And as he was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew were questioning him privately. Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all, the things, all these things are going to be fulfilled? And Jesus began to say to them, See to it that no one misleads you. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he and will mislead many. When you hear wars and rumors of wars, do not be frightened. Those things must take place, but this is not yet the end. For nation will rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will also be famines. These things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you to the courts, and you will be flogged in the synagogues, and you will stand before the governor's and kings for my sake as a testimony to them. The gospel must first be preached to all the nations. When they arrest you and hand you over, do not worry beforehand about what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speaks, but it is the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child, and children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. You will be hated by all because of my name. But the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. Despite the uncertainty of the time of Christ's return, despite the, the persecution and the trials and the death that would face many of these disciples, they were to, to stand up and courageously do the will of Christ. 
They were to do the will of Christ. Jesus and His disciples were leaving the temple. This is Tuesday before He is crucified. Just a few more days and He will be led to that cross. They're probably heading back to Bethany right now where they would stay during the evenings. Remember, He had been there all day in the temple teaching. And they come. They're probably on their way to Mary and Martha and Lazarus' house where they would stay for the evening, most likely. And they come up to the Mount of Olives and Jesus delivers what is is referred to uh, by many as the Olivet Discourse. And you can understand why. Because in verse 3 it says that He was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple. So it's really quite a spectacular view if you think about it. Mount of Olives is about 200 feet above Jerusalem. So when you come out of Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem and, and the temple, you would go down into the Kidron Valley and then back up the Mount of Olives. And when you get to the top of the Mount of Olives, you'd be able to look down over the city, particularly the temple area. It must have been quite a spectacular view. And as they were looking over this, they, Jesus began to give these exhortations in response to what the disciples were asking. And so the first thing that, that we need to see is that we are living in a time where it's uncertain about, the, about His return. That is, the time of His return. We live in a day when it's uncertain when He will return. That is in verses 1-8. through 8. Jesus begins here by giving them a divine perspective of the temple. You see, in verse 1, they say, Teacher, behold what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. They were awestruck by this amazing man-made center of worship. What an amazing thing. Look at all these stones. Herod uh, had doubled the size of the temple, and it, it was a spectacular sight. The walls of the sanctuary were about 100 feet high on some sides. They were made of white marble, and uh, the roof was covered in gold. It's quite a spectacular scene. It was a symbol, really, for the Jews of national pride. They thought very highly of their temple and of their worship. And so the disciples picked up on that and they said, what a spectacular building. Look at these stones. In fact, some of these stones were so massive. Uh, One was recorded to have been 37 feet long, 12 feet wide, and 18 feet high. And was said to have weighed 1 million pounds. I'm not sure what kind of crane they used to get that thing in place. but, But this was a spectacular building. And the stones that weren't pure white on the outside of this building were covered in gold. And so the disciples step back and they look at this spectacular uh, creation. You understand in a man-made way. And, and they say, what an amazing building. And look at Jesus' response to them as in verse 2. He says, do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another which will be torn down, which will not be torn down. See, Jesus had a divine perspective because he had the end in sight. He was thinking, and uh, uh, he had an eternal perspective. And what he recognized is that this temple would not last forever. There was coming a day when this temple would be destroyed. And we know from our history books that this temple was destroyed in AD 70 when the Romans came in and raided this city and they tore down the entire building. They knocked off every stone from off of, its, uh, off of the stone that was below it. Nothing was left. 
they did this because they wanted to to uh, grab the spoils that were there, basically, in that building. The gold-covered stone, they wanted to, to peel off as much of that as they could. The ones that weren't marble, they wanted to just leave behind, of course. So Jesus really is making a prediction here. He's predicting that the temple will not last forever. You, you think this is a spectacular building, disciples? It, it is from our perspective. But when you think about it from a heavenly perspective, it's not going to last forever. In fact, it wasn't about it wasn't uh, 40 years later until that that building did come down. So Jesus now um, gives them something to think about. This temple is going to be torn down, and so they respond in verses three and four with the question: Okay, so Jesus, if this temple is going to be born torn down, if this spectacular sight is going to come down, then then when is this going to happen? What are the signs going to be? Notice verse 3. And as he was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew were questioning him privately, apparently in response to what they had talked about on the way. Verse 4, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are going to be fulfilled? Mark in verse 3 mentions only four disciples, Peter, James, and John, and then Andrew. Uh, normally not referred to in that small group that Jesus would often take aside and teach. Remember at the Mount of Transfiguration in chapter 9? But he mentions Andrew as well. And I think basically these are the men who are the spokespeople for the rest of the disciples who probably were there. It's not clear from the text. but, but But what they ask is, okay, when is this temple going to be torn down? What are the signs of its of its uh, destruction? Or when... What should we expect when this is near? And so they ask these questions. But what we don't really get from our text here in Mark is that it seems like they're only asking about the temple. Look at verse 4 again. Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are going to be fulfilled? But I think it is made more clear in Matthew chapter 24. Let me have you turn there. This is a parallel passage. Same story taking place. But notice, Matthew records more... Uh, detail with their questions. So this helps us to understand that Jesus is not just talking about the signs. When He talks about wars and rumors of wars and all these other things that are coming, and later on next week we're going to see cosmological disturbances like the stars falling, the sun going dim, and and those sorts of things. That's not the signs that, that are telling us when the temple will fall. And we know that because Matthew chapter 24, verse 3. This is the same story that we read about in Mark. Verse 3 says, As he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things happen, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Okay, So what are they thinking here? They're thinking that the temple, the destruction of the temple, is tied to the return of Christ. They think that, that Christ... Remember, they they weren't fully understanding of what this whole Messiah thing meant. And so when, when Jesus talks about these end times, when He talks about the temple being destroyed, they, they can't imagine worship apart from the temple. So if this is going to happen, that means the kingdom's going to be ushered in. And that's why they ask this question here. Tell us, when will these things happen? When will it be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? That, that'll have to be the end of all things if the temple is destroyed, Right? 
certainly not that's not what Jesus had intended, but that's what they were asking. And so what Jesus does in Mark chapter 13 is he answers both of those questions. You see, they think they're asking one question. When will we see the signs of the destruction of the temple? When will we see the signs of the end of the age? They think they're asking one question, but Jesus is saying, no, you're actually asking two questions. Because the destruction of the temple is not the end of the age. There's more still to come. In fact, they thought that the kingdom was near. If you look at Luke chapter 19, verse 11, you don't have to turn there, but it says that they thought that the kingdom was coming immediately. They thought that Jesus was going to usher in the kingdom, all this kingdom talk, and that the kingdom of God is near, and that He is the Messiah of the kingdom, that, then He must be bringing the kingdom quickly. And so, what will the signs be? It must happen during our lifetime. Jesus responds in two ways to their questions. There are two questions. We can separate them this way. When will the temple be destroyed? What are the signs of that? And then, what will be the signs of the end of the age? And Jesus answers both of those in a reverse order. Okay, first, in verses 5-8, through eight, He answers the question, when will the end of the age come? What are the signs that it will come? Verse 5, And Jesus began to say to them, See to it that no one misleads you. Many will come in My name, saying, I am He, and will mislead many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be frightened. Those things must, must take place, but that's not yet the end. For nation will rise up against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will also be famines. These things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. First, we're going to look at the signs that Jesus gives, and then we'll look at why I believe that these are the signs of the end times, not the signs of their current life, or our current life even. It's really the signs of the future age. And what I want you to notice here is the several things that Jesus lists. First, He lists that there will be antichrists who come, right? Many will come to Me in My name saying, I am, and it's capital H, He, speaking of the Messiah. I am the Messiah. If many people are coming in His name, then then He's speaking of the Antichrist. And as John records, there will be many Antichrists. In fact, there have been many Antichrists in our day. But what Jesus is referring to, I believe, is is actually still future, still referring to the time um, that is still to come following the rapture. And the reason I say that is because notice the other things that are listed. First, you have the Antichrist, verses 5 and 6. You have wars in verse 7. You have international conflict at the beginning of verse 8 and earthquakes, middle of verse 8, and famines at the end of verse 8. Verse 8. And what's interesting about this is, um, is that these all point to the tribulation period, the first half of the tribulation. Now, if you've studied your Bible for a long time, that you know that this kingdom that I'm talking about, is there's really two aspects of the kingdom. We have the millennial kingdom, which is the 1,000-year reign of Jesus Christ, where Jesus comes and He actually comes down to the earth in His human body and reigns as King on the earth for 1,000 years. After that time, has a final judgment, the great white throne judgment over here, where all the dead will be raised and will be judged according to their deeds and will be thrown into the hell for those who have denied Him. And then after that will be the eternal kingdom. So that's why I said there's two aspects of the kingdom. You have the millennial, the 1,000-year kingdom, and then you have the eternal kingdom. Okay, So if you have studied your Bible for a long time, if you've been around uh, the church for a while, you know that that is coming. 
But before that, what takes place? What happens immediately before this millennial kingdom? Well, it's the Battle of Armageddon. Okay, this Battle of Armageddon actually happens here on the earth. Jesus comes, touches down on the Mount of Olives, and then He performs this battle and it says that He, he destroys these wicked armies with the word of His mouth. With the sword of His mouth, I should say. Right before the Battle of Armageddon is this tribulation period. It's a seven-year period that will be the worst in human history. It's detailed out for us in Revelation chapter 6, chapters 6 through 19. And it was prophesied by Daniel in chapter 9 when he refers to this seven year period as the 70th week. And other Old Testament writers refer to it as the time of Jacob's trouble or the beginning of the day of the Lord. And the day of the Lord is really that period that starts at the beginning of the tribulation and lasts all the way to the end of the kingdom. And so you have this day of the Lord that begins with judgment, the seven-year tribulation judgment. And what you find as you study more about this tribulation is that, is that the Scripture is divided up into two equal periods. A period of three and a half years that is the beginning of birth pains as we read about here. And then you have this, this other period period where it's the, the time of great tribulation or the great and terrible day of the Lord. It's the worst part in human history, the second three and a half years where God's judgment will be poured out with an amazing amount of measure. So we come to the context about the end times events and what we need to understand here is that these events in verses 5 through 8 correspond with the same events that happened in the first three and a half years of the tribulation judgment. In the first three and a half years, what we have in Revelation chapter 6 recorded for us is the first set of, of judgments. They're called seal judgments. There's seven of them. The first six of them happen in the first three and a half years of the tribulation judgment. And if you were to study through Revelation chapter 6, what you'd find is that they, they contain these very same things we just read about. The Antichrist coming, the wars, the international conflict, the famine, the earthquake, and the—I uh, uh, think that was it—the famine, the earthquake, and and the uh, international conflict. Those are all coming in judgment from God. So that's why I say that verses five through eight are referring to the end times, because here's the way that that a lot of—I've heard this preached this way before. We look at verses five through eight, and we say, well, when there are wars and rumors of wars, then be ready. Because the coming of the Lord is near. What it's actually referring to is this first three and a half year period. And when these wars and rumors of war come, the people who are there in the tribulation period need to take heart. They need to continue doing the will of Christ because Christ's return is coming. You see, when He returns here at the rapture, which is right before the tribulation, He doesn't come all the way down to the earth, does He? We're just saying about it. It says that we will meet the Lord in the air. We'll be transported to meet Him in the air. He doesn't come all the way down. And that's why this, this return that, that they're looking forward to in the tribulation, they're looking forward to even greater probably than we are because of the pain and the suffering that they will go through. His return will come and He will make all things right at that point. So now we have a little bit of context of what Jesus is talking about. And another reason that I think this is referring to the first half of the tribulation is because what happens now in verses 14 through 23, which we're going to look at next week, verses 14 through 23 describe what takes place in the second half of the tribulation. 
Okay, of the two halves, which one was the worst? Do you remember? It was the second half. Right? The first is the beginning of birth pains. And really, it's a, quite an adequate picture, I think, of what those times will be like. Based on my limited knowledge of labor and delivery, I know that contractions start out slow and less painful, but then as, the, as it gets closer, then they get longer and harder and closer together. And that's exactly what the tribulation is going to be like. It starts out as not as painful. There will be some trouble. There will be some pain, yes. There will be some times of, of comfort, perhaps. But then as you get closer to the end, that pain will be so great. And that will lead to the, the great joy that will come at the end of those birth pangs, at the end of that great um, delivery, really, when Jesus Christ comes. So what I'm saying here is that verse 14, verses 14 through 23 describe for us the second half of the tribulation. Verses 5 through 8 describe the first half of the tribulation. I don't have the time to explain to you why I think that, but Luke, if you look at his gospel with regard to the same, uh, the same thing, what we find is that in Luke chapter 21 that he basically takes time and he says before all these things happen, he, he's been talking about wars, rumors of wars, all these things, but he says before all these things happen, then he talks about what's happening in the current age. And then he goes back to continuing where he left off. And so... Um, for that and, and some other reasons, I do believe that this is referring to the end times. So what are they supposed to do? What, what are they supposed to do during these times? They're supposed to take heart. They're supposed to continue to do the will of God. This isn't going to be the disciples themselves. It won't be us. We're not going to be around during the tribulation. If you're a believer, you will be transported to meet the Lord in the air, and you will be spared, according to Revelation 3.10, from that great and terrible day of the Lord. You'll be spared from that judgment because you're a part of Christ's church. You are Christ's bride. So then he, he moves on in verses 9 through 13. Jesus does, and he asks really their first question. When, what will be the signs that the temple is going to be destroyed? Now you, Jesus is telling them, listen, I'm going to tell you about when the end of the age is coming. I, I began to tell you in verses 5 through 8. I'll continue in 14 through 23. But now I want to talk to you about What's going to happen with this temple that you asked about? And one of the things that we see is, verse 9, that there will be persecution with these disciples, and I believe with us, persecution. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you to the courts, and you will be flogged in the synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them. Jew, the Jewish religious leaders had the right to carry out scourging within the temples when someone went against the law of Moses. And so what Jesus is saying is they will think that you're going against the law of Moses and they will scourge you. And, and so be prepared for it. Persecution, by the way, is inevitable for all believers. Jesus said in John chapter 15, verse 20, if they persecuted me, what? They will persecute you. And Paul says in, in uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3, he says, all who desire to live godly will suffer persecution. Now, persecution in the Scriptures often talks about physical beating and, and perhaps even death. And that's what it normally refers to as physical suffering. And, and so we look at ourselves and we say, well, I haven't had any physical suffering for the sake of Christ. So 
either one of two things is happening. Either the Scriptures aren't true, which can't be the case, or maybe I'm not taking a stand for Christ enough. So how come I'm not having physical suffering? Because all who desire to live godly will suffer persecution. But if you study more of the Scriptures, what you'll find, the word persecution actually refers to more than just physical suffering, or less than that, we could say. And that is... It refers to when people just say evil things about you. Matthew chapter 5, verses 10 and 11. Blessed are those who persecute you when they say all sorts of evil against you. The idea there is that persecution, don't feel bad if you haven't been physically beaten for the sake of Christ. Now that very well may happen to you in this lifetime. You may have to take a stand for Christ and you may be suffer physically, but, but persecution is not just physical suffering. It is when people scorn you like they scorned Christ. When they ridicule, when they mock you because of what you believe. That is persecution just as well as physical suffering is. So if you desire to live godly, you will suffer that. Jesus is saying that to them here in verse 9. But he also tells them, verse 10, that the gospel must be preached to all nations. This is in keeping with Jesus' original mission for the disciples. He says, don't stop preaching the gospel until the Son of Man comes. When I finally come, then you can stop. Because at that time, there won't be a, an opportunity to repent. When I finally come and touch down here at the, the end of the tribulation, it will be over. But until that time, continue to preach. And what we learn here from this verse is that, that Christ cannot come until the last person whom God has chosen comes to Christ. And so as disciples of Jesus Christ, our responsibility is to, to, to reach out to the people around us and, and tell them about the gospel of Jesus Christ and make sure that the nations know, that, that all the Gentiles in the world know. But also he says that you will suffer, uh, or, or that, that you should be confident, verse 11, because of this inspired defense that you can be sure of. Verse 11, when they arrest you and hand you over, to, do not worry beforehand about what you're to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it's not you who speaks, but it's the Holy Spirit. This is an inspired defense. When it comes to promises of Scripture, we should claim the promises of Scripture unless they are meant for someone else, unless they're someone else's promises. And here I think we have a case of that. Okay, this does not mean that you do not need to prepare when you go out and witness to somebody because the Holy Spirit is going to magically speak through you. Okay, we should trust in the Holy Spirit. We should be confident in what we've learned from the Scripture and speak on behalf. But, but ultimately what Jesus is saying is that for you, disciples, okay, you're talking about the end of the destruction of the temple. When you get led before those chief priests and those rulers and they start questioning you, don't worry beforehand about that. Okay, I got that all taken care of. I've got my spirit that will be ready for that. Just say whatever comes to your mind, and that will be the spirit speaking. That certainly not is not a promise for us. And uh, we'll talk about how that does apply to us here when we get to the end. But there also be verse twelve inner family conflict. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child. You know, if we really believe the gospel, if we really believe its message, if we really stand for the message of the gospel, then people will find that the gospel message that we love and we stand for is offensive, won't they? They will find it offensive because 
our gospel message is exclusive. It's not like a lot of the other religions in the world that say, hey, come on in our circle. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you're like. It doesn't, God doesn't care about all those things. That's not what Christianity is about. Christianity is fund- fundamentally about a change in loyalties. We were once slaves of Satan, of sin. And we have to give that up in order to come to Christ, don't we? That's what repentance is all about. And so if we believe that, if we live that, if we love that around our family, even though that's the closest tie that you can imagine, okay, next to your spouse, that's the closest tie, that there will be opposition to it, that brother will betray brother, even to the point of death. Father, his son, how could that be possible? Jesus says, it's because of my name. It may seem unloving to do what you're about to do, but what it does is it helps to point them to their own sinfulness and a recognition that they are headed toward judgment, just like we all are as humans, unless we have someone to stand in our place. That may not be a very loving message. It's not exactly a message that will tickle their ears but it is the message that we have been given. And as a result, it will split families and it will generate conflict at Thanksgiving and over Christmas dinner. But that's what the Gospel is about. It's about showing them their greatest need. That we're not here to try to, to cause division. That's not our goal. Our ultimate goal is to show you the glory of the Gospel. And as a result, it, it automatically puts people, pits people on different sides. It splits people down the middle. They have to make a choice. They can't just passively accept every single religion in the world. They have to either accept Christ or reject Him. Those are the only two things. So what should we do as a result of these signs of the coming of the temple and for us the signs of our day that there will be persecution, there will be trials, there will be death perhaps. There's certainly an uncertainty about Christ's coming, the time of Christ's coming. So what should we do? And that leads us to the main point, I think, of this passage, and that is that we should courageously do the will of Christ. We should courageously do what Christ wants us to do. Recognize that that where you stand in the end times calendar. Recognize where you stand. Verses 7 and 8 say, it's not the end yet. It's merely the beginning of the birth pains. Speaking of the first half of the tribulation, no one knows when Christ will come. We'll see that next week. There will be no signs of the rapture of the church. The only signs that we have that are recorded in Scripture are really at the end of the tribulation and when Christ will touch down, when He will come in that final day. So don't be deceived about every time you read something about Israel. Oh, now we're more... We're closer to the rapture than we were before. In one sense, we are because we're closer. But just because Israel has positioned themselves in one way doesn't make the return of Christ any more imminent. It has always been imminent. He could have come at any time up until now. He didn't have to wait until technology caught up to uh, to the place where you know the Antichrist's message could be transported or or beamed around the world. Could happen at any time. We don't have to wait for anything else. So in other words, the next thing on the end times calendar is not that the, the Israel comes to a certain place in their history. The next thing is the return of Christ. Do you realize that it could happen today? 
His return is near. So our response here in verse 33 and verse 37, let me have you skip ahead because this is a continuation of what he had been saying. In verse 9, he said, Be on your guard. Verse 33, we see again, Take heed, keep on the alert, for you do not know when the appointed time will come. Verse 37, here, here he summarizes his whole message. What I say to you, I say to all, be on the alert. Our job as Christians is to recognize that the coming of the Lord is near. And our job is not to sit back and go, oh yeah, that's coming. That'll be fun when that comes. Make sure that your candle's lit and it's burning and, it, and there's plenty of oil there. Light your lamp. Because if it goes out, then you will not be ready for when He does return. Recognize also, we need to be alert, but we need to recognize what God is doing with regard to the Gospel. Verse 10 tells us that the Son of Man cannot come until the Gospel has been preached to all the nations. There are still people out there that need to be saved. And in that regard, we need to trust in the power of the Spirit that really is not us who changes them. If we just flower our speech enough for them, then they, they will have to accept it. It's really we, all we need to do is give them the Word of God, tell them what the truth is, and allow the Spirit to do all that work of transforming. We don't have to manipulate. We don't have to argue. Sometimes that uh, sort of uh, discussion can be helpful, but, but ultimately we need to recognize that the power that comes in salvation comes from the power of the Spirit. And then we need to recognize that the world is no friend to grace. The world is no friend to grace. Even brothers will rise up against brothers and betray them to death. Verse 13 says, You will be hated by all because of My name. The world is no friend to grace. If you are on the side of Jesus Christ, then the world is opposed to you. The song that one of the songs that I love to think about is Am I a Soldier of the Cross? Verse three says, Are there no foes for me to face? Must I not stem the flood? Is this vile world a friend of grace to, to help me on to God? Or are they helping me on my journey to God? Or are they opposed to it? If you don't feel if you don't sense an uphill battle in your spiritual life against the the forces of this world, then perhaps you aren't fighting. Perhaps you have put your guard down and thought that it's not really that big of a deal. Whatever happens, happens. But what we need to understand is that we must endure to the end. Look at the end of verse 13. But the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. You see, true Christians have been transformed and will persevere despite trials despite persecution, despite the, the imminent death. Nothing can separate them from the love that Christ has for them, even in the midst of, of Christ's coming, Romans 8.35 says. Nothing can separate us. Jesus is not saying in any way here that, that our endurance results in our salvation, but rather that salvation is demonstrated to those who persevere. It, that is, when we are saved, it is demonstrated, it is shown in a life that, that continues on till the end. If a person is truly saved, he will endure because God has enabled him to do so. So don't sit back and, and let your guard down. Say, you know what? 
once saved, always saved type thing. Yeah, that is true from God's perspective. From our perspective, we need to continue to fight, continue trusting, continue working. And if you've never turned to Christ for your salvation, then this message is for you. The judgment that is coming on all people is real. It's not something that's just talked about or or uh, just came up. It just came up by some. It was uh, come up by some philosopher. It's real. If you don't put your trust in the the eternal Redeemer Jesus Christ, then then you will be a part of that judgment in the sense that you will be judged. Because whoever rejects God will be rejected by God, according to Scripture. And rejection doesn't simply mean judgment on the earth. It means eternal judgment in a real place called hell, where people who reject God will be separated from His special presence forever. God is a wrathful God because of our sin. We have defied Him. He created us, and yet we turned from Him. And the only thing that He can do as a loving God and a hater of sin is to destroy those who oppose Him. But you know, although we deserve His wrath, we all do, Jesus has been sent to stand in our place. He took God's wrath upon Him at the cross. He, he took our burden upon us so that we don't have to experience that judgment. And Jesus now lives in heaven where He will one day come back and, and judge the world for their sin and then bring those home who have trusted in Him. And He will reign as King forevermore. Your only opportunity to accept Him is in this lifetime. You can't wait until, you know what? I don't quite believe, but once I get to the next life, I'll choose then. Then I'll know for sure. Our faith is, our, our, our righteous, our faith is credited to us as righteousness in the sense that not that we deserve it, but because we can't be righteous enough on our own, God will accept faith in replacement of it. If you just trust that God has sent Jesus Christ and that Jesus is enough, then He'll accept that. And as a result, God's wrath will be satisfied through the death of His Son, Jesus Christ, if you just believe that Jesus is enough. If you continue believing that Jesus is enough, Romans 10, 9 and 10 says, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. It is a promise that is meant for all people who will accept the Son, Jesus Christ. Christian, the battle is not over. The battle is not merely future. The battle is now. There is a battle going on. You will be hated because of your stand for Christ. You will suffer persecution because of your love for Christ. You may even suffer death. But don't despair. The Lord is on your side. He guards the future as He has the past. Let nothing shape the hope and the confidence that you have in Him. Let's bow together for prayer. Our Father, we are amazed at Your grace. We certainly deserve none of it. And we, like the disciples, are often nearsighted with regard to the things going on in this world. We look at them and say, what amazing things that have been made by the hands of human and what amazing ingenuity. 
And yet one stone in this world will not be left on another. In the final sense, all things will be destroyed. Heaven and earth will pass away, but Your Word will last forever. And so we want to trust in Your Word. We want to wholly give ourselves to Your Word. We pray that You'd help us to obey. Help us to trust. Help us to recognize that persecutions, although they seem uh, long and hard and against us personally, we recognize that they hate us because they hated Jesus Christ. And it is our love for Him that causes them to hate us. And so we pray that You'd help us to recognize our place in this battle. Help us not to give up. Help us not to be fatalistic. Help us not to be complacent or apathetic. The battle that is all around us. The world is no friend to grace. They are not helping us on to You and to Your purposes. So we need You. We need to constantly depend on You. We pray that You'd help us to be a humble people, to recognize our position before You, to recognize our lowly estate, and turn to You in thanksgiving and, and asking for Your grace to be poured out on us with exceeding measure as we continue to do your will. Pray that you'd help our church in this way. In Jesus' name, amen.